Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Mental health on Father's Day. Thanks, Mike. Let's, let's, uh, let's get stuck in. So when I was a new dad, I went to see my GP. And I went to go see my GP because I was, I was feeling consistently anxious, overwhelmed, exhausted. And I came in with an expectation, and that was that, uh, that I would get a mental health plan and get to see a psychologist. I'd been talking to a psychologist, and he said, go and get a mental health plan so we can talk. And so I went there. And I thought, look, I'll just do this, I'll sort myself out, done. I go to this GP and he starts asking me outrageous questions like, do you exercise, Tim? <laughs> and I said, well, no, what does that have to do with it? He's like, well, go and have a half an hour walk once a day and come back and let me know how you're going. And, and, uh, and that was a good response and I felt very genuinely deeply embarrassed about uh, about that appointment. I didn't go back and see him for a while. Uh, the sinful part of me finds it deeply embarrassing to be wrong. Uh, and that's, not, of course, not actually what happened there. Uh, and everyone gets things wrong. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's a terrible way to live trying to get things right all the time. I'm preaching myself here. Um, but then later, definitely not straight away, later, um, I started to run with my legs outside. Yeah. You wouldn't believe this. He was right. He was right. I moved my body and my baseline anxiety decreased so much that I actually felt quite silly about it. How could moving my body make my mental and emotional state much more better, so much more level? And it turns out I just had to show my body some love uh, and it responded. Now, this is true for me. This might not be true for you. And this won't be true for everyone. And that's what makes mental health such a difficult thing to talk about. It's broad and complex. Physical illness diagnosis uh, can be easy to talk about because they're generally explanations of symptoms that can be tested. Your leg hurts. Ah, we can see by this x-ray that you have snapped your leg in half. Whereas a mental illness diagnosis are their descriptions of symptoms and the descriptions that are found in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5th Edition, or DSM-5. So a combination of experiencing fatigue, like a focus, weight gain, hopelessness, things that used to bring you joy no longer bring you joy. Your sleep is just woeful and it's not because of children and you are a moody boy or girl. That kind of description of symptoms might get you diagnosed with depression. So how do we understand mental health? Well, the World Health Organization defines it in the positive. Mental health is a state of mental well-being that enables people to cope with the stresses of life, realize their abilities, learn well and work well and contribute to their community. And yet when we talk about it, we can often talk about it in the negative. We can conflate mental health with mental illness. That person has mental health. Uh, So-and-so has mental health. People with mental health. We use uh, in our language. And that doesn't mean they're doing that well, it means that they're struggling or mentally ill. 
And that can actually be quite an unhelpful way to talk about it because it kind of creates this dichotomy that there are only two states. People are either mentally ill, uh, you have mental health, or you're completely peachy, fine, nothing's going wrong. And seeing mental health that way can be why it can be so hard for people who don't have severe depression to get the help they need if they're feeling mildly depressed and not coping. It's not as severe as it could be, right? It's not like I'm mentally ill. And that can make it difficult for them, someone who might be mildly depressed to put themselves in good positions to get the help they need to become mentally well again. So mental health can mean mental well-being and mental illness and somewhere in between. And that probably makes mental health more of a spectrum than a, uh, than a black and white, ill or well. Pastoral counsellor Ronald Richardson says this, health is of course a relative term. All people, no matter how sick, have some degree of health. Or they would not be alive. Only death represents the complete lack of health. So unless you're dead, you have a degree of health. And we all have a degree of mental health in the same way. Everyone has mental health. And everyone's mental health will change over the course of your life just like your physical health will. We all have mental health just like we all have physical health. And some of us here are bearing mental illness the way that some of us here are bearing a physical illness. So today is not a sermon about mental illness, although we'll talk about it. Today is a sermon about mental health. Before we go any further, shall we pray? Lord, give us your grace today. We need it. We would be nowhere without your grace. Lord, we just ask that you would accomplish your will today through the preaching of your word. May it be your word, Lord Jesus. Uphold and comfort those for whom speaking about mental illness uh, is difficult. And Holy Spirit, would you comfort those who are grappling with mental illness today? In your name, Jesus. Amen. So how does someone become mentally ill? Uh, well, it's not the same as being able to x-ray a leg and see that it's snapped in half. There are lots of different reasons where someone could be mentally unwell. There are biological factors like genetics, there are psychological factors like personality traits, and there are social factors like trauma. I heard uh, of a leading Australian psychologist this week say, I used to know how to diagnose ADHD. It used to be clear-cut. It was biochemical factors. But now I'm not so sure. Do the biochemicals shape the behavioural and the behaviours, or does the behaviours shape and play off the biochemical? So why people become mentally ill is very broad, and psychology and psychiatry then becomes about, in part, treating the symptoms that are present to help that person return to living an effective life in community and in line with their long-term values. The focus is not so much on the causes, although they might become obvious in therapy, but how to respond and treat the symptoms that that person is experiencing. And so we're going to do the same today. We're not going to spend an extended time looking at, at all the mental illnesses and causes them and society and the cultural ideologies that underpins its assumptions or plays a part in that. Um, mostly because I'm not qualified for that, although surely the amount of money our family has spent on therapy should account <laughs> for something. We're going to consider what hope biblical theology has and the good news about Jesus and what it can offer us and how we respond to being mentally ill, if we are mentally ill, to those we know who are mentally ill and those who are mentally well and those who are somewhere in between. Now, God has an awful lot to say on this matter because it's wrapped up on what it means to be a human being, and that's the point of this 
sermon series in the journey we're going on. So I'm going to be throwing an awful lot of you, an awful lot of you tonight. We're going to fly through some stuff. So if you've got taken notes, take notes. It might help you. Um, buckle up. Let's go. All right. So we're going to race through some core theological concepts. The first one is this. You're a holistic being who requires holistic care. The second is you are in the middle of God's big story. The third is that you belong to Jesus. The fourth is that your response is your responsibility. And the fifth is that Jesus sees, knows, and is in it with you. And we're going to finish with something a bit practical as well. So let's start. In Genesis 2, 7, humans are created from the dust and the breath of God. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now that word breath is ruach. You've got you to say it. It's really fun. Ruach. And it's the, spirit for wind, uh, the word for spirit, wind, or breath. So human beings are dust and spirit, physical and spiritual, material and immaterial. Now God forms the animals, but he doesn't give them this breath of life. They don't get a spirit, and that's what makes humanity different and unique. And the dust and the spirit, they're not opposing natures. They come together to give humanity life. And if they are ever separated, that's commonly called being dead. You are created a, a whole being. You are holistic. You are what biblical scholars call an embodied soul. You're a soul that is embodied. And God looked at what he made and he declared it most excellent. So we are embodied souls. Yeah, there seems to be lots of different parts to a human person, right? And in the Bible, we see lots of different words used in the Old and New Testament. Here's a couple of them. Soul, spirit, heart, mind, body, will. And the truth is that the authors of the Bible use these uh, in lots of different ways, and sometimes they use the same word for different things, but, you know, for the same thing. It's all, so they sort of play off each other. And that's because we're looking at it with an assumption uh, that an ancient and first century worldview just does not have. We assume we can break up a human person into lots of really easily definable bits and pieces, and, you know, that's one of the benefits of modern medicine. Um, but ancient and first century... Uh, they're just not thinking on that level. They just see people as whole beings, as whole, uh, as whole persons. Uh, N.T. Wright, biblical scholar, and Mike's, uh, featured in Mike's favourite selfie, <laughs> says this. Uh, I, love it, I love it. It's great. Uh, we need to think in terms of differentiated unity. Each term denotes the entire human being. He's talking about that list of terms. Well, connoting... I can't even say that word. You know what I mean. Some angle of vision on who that human is and what he or she is called to be. So humans have different parts, but they are completely unified. They're like, and when we talk about them um, and we use these terms, they're like photographs of the same person, but from different angles. It's differentiated unity, separate parts and yet whole. I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. God himself is a differentiated unity. In the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct persons, and yet one God. And who are we made in the image of? God. God. Great. I mean, that's, you've been paying attention. It's good. Um, so God, the Trinity, in Genesis 1, verse 26, let us make mankind in our own image. So God, the Trinity, is distinct parts, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet one whole God. Is there any wonder that we're made in the same way. And this has implications for our mental health. 
Things don't just happen to one part of us. Trauma just doesn't happen in the mind or in the body. You are a holistic being. Therefore, every part of you is intricately and deeply connected. For example, there's a, a study from John Hopkins University that shows because the stress hormone cortisol makes it difficult to regulate inflammation, if you're rehabbing like a knee, even just a positive attitude can speed up your recovery. Isn't that crazy? But if you're stressed about it, it's just going to take longer. You're a whole being. When you were ill in some way, all of you was affected. And on the same token, when you're not doing well, sometimes putting work into the other parts of you makes a big difference. Mental health can affect spiritual health. Spiritual health can affect physical health. Physical health can affect mental health. That's probably why for me, starting to run made such a huge difference for me. It took me some, somewhere in the middle of the mental health spectrum to, um, closer towards mental well-being. Because I'm a holistic being. And I wasn't showing care to my body, and it affected my mind and my emotions. So, biblical theology says you're an embodied soul made of different parts, but a unified whole being declared good by God. Not just good, it's good, good, it's double good, it's very good. (laughs) You live in the middle, and, and you live as an embodied soul in the middle of God's big story. God's big story is between two gardens, the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and the Garden City called New Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelation. And sin began in the Garden of Eden when humanity rebelled against God in Genesis 3, wanting to take the place of God, to come like Him. And that sin corrupts everything. People, communities, marriages, even creation itself. But even in the Garden, as humanity commits its first sin and corrupts the world, God lays down a plan for redemption for humanity. God says to the snake in Genesis 3.15, And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God foretells the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the snake and its effects. And its effects are sin and death. But the offspring of the woman will be mortally wounded in the process. Fast forward thousands of years and Jesus is born. And Jesus is the God of the universe who steps into a corrupted human body and yet does not allow that corruption to take hold of him. He's just as limited as we are, experiences the fullness of the human condition, and yet he doesn't sin. He doesn't give in to the corruption. The powers, principalities, and the people have Jesus murdered on a cross, thinking they have the victory, but in taking that mortal wound, Jesus deals a death blow to sin and death. On the third day, Jesus is raised to life. He ascends to heaven and launches this movement called the church by giving his people the Holy Spirit. And it's lasted an awful long time because we're standing here today. Death and sin are dealt with forever. And the result of this is that Jesus is making us into a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But that's not always our present uh, experience, is it? Now, when we give our lives to Jesus, there's a whole lot of new that comes. And when we continue to submit ourselves to Jesus, the new comes, but there's also a whole lot of old. There's a whole lot of old. We all sin and we all die. Now, how do we make sense of this? Now, one theologian termed it the already, but the not yet. Sin and death has been defeated, but the mopping up of evil, sin and death in this world is still ongoing. 
The best example I know of this to sort of explain it as much as you can is that, you know, World War II was kind of won on D-Day. That was a decisive victory. But uh, it took almost a year for Germany to surrender afterwards. Victory was already in hand, but also it wasn't yet. It was, but not yet. And we live in that already, but not yet. We have the promise from Jesus and the authors of the New Testament in the book of Revelation about a time when Jesus will return in all of his glory and put the world right again. God will renew the whole world and renew even our own bodies. And those who have put their faith in Jesus will be raised from the dead in renewed bodies and enjoy renewed creation, everlasting intimacy with God forever. That sounds amazing. The world will be how it was always supposed to be. And now we get glimpses of that in part. A glorious sunset, a time in rich community, intimacy between friends or spouses, beautiful gardens, rippling beaches, the joy of creating with our own hands. But on that day, we'll experience what we experienced there in part in its fullness. Sin and death will never again touch or corrupt us. God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We live between a garden and a garden city. And now that's me trying to summarize the Bible in like five minutes. So, no, 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 no stop. Um, but so let me give you a limited metaphor about how to understand our, how we place ourselves between garden and garden city, right? So you probably have a phone, surely, right? Um, how long can your phone run when it's plugged in? Theoretically, it can just keep running and we'll just forget about battery decay and whenever Apple gives you an update, right? <laughs> Move to Pixel, it's better. Um, when, you, when you unplug your phone, eventually it's going to die, right? What happened in the garden was that our sin against God unplugs us so that we're no longer connected to our source of life. And we eventually run out of battery and die. But sin also does this. It corrupts our software, our operating system, and it corrupts our hardware, our bodies as well. The inner and the outer life experience the effects of sin. And what Jesus did on the cross in giving us the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to forgive the metaphor, kind of uploads a patch, right, that does the slow, hard work of renewing and, frankly, upgrading your inner life, your software. So that internally, by the end of your life, you're more like who God created you to be and you're more like Jesus than when you began. Dalesworth has a great little line for this. It's called training for reigning. Training for reigning. But in this present life, our hardware is still corrupted and unplugged, and it will die. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. One day when Jesus returns, God will renew your outer self, as well as what remains to be done to your inner self. He'll give you a new body and plug you back into the grid, which is God himself. Now, there are massive implications for this, but I just want to name briefly a few that impact the implications for mental illness and mental health. All of creation is fractured and broken, and many mental illnesses or vulnerabilities to mental illness are genetically predisposed and inherited. Sometimes we're mentally ill because the effects of sin, humanity's sin in the garden, Plays, is playing itself out in our bodies. And this is probably the same reason cancer exists. 
the effects of the sin in the Garden of Eden playing itself out in our bodies. One person's sin may contribute to the mental illness of another, trauma, abuse. Being mentally ill is not a sin. In fact, if you're mentally ill, it's probably not because of your own individual sin. Your inner self is being renewed day by day through the Holy Spirit. This may mean that you can recover mental well-being in your lifetime, no matter how mentally ill you are. Even if you don't recover mental well-being in your lifetime, God will renew your holistic person and there will be no mental illness in the Garden City. Amen. All right, let's keep going. You're a holistic being in the middle of God's great story and that gives us wonderful grounds for our value and self-esteem. God did all of that because of his great love for you. Ephesians 1, 5 to 7 says this, God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Because of Jesus, we've been adopted into God's family. How good is that? He did it not out of obligation because he saw, you know, um, one of us and he's like, oh, that guy's just too good. I guess I better go and die on a cross for them. He didn't do that. He did it because of his great love for us what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure i was called out recently for saying we in regards to something that i am not actually involved in in any way and it was when i said we were robbed right in front of me when the crows were absolutely robbed the crows were robbed right we gain our identities and our sense of self from lots of different and tragic things like football. At least I'm not a North Melbourne supporter. <laughs> but there's one identity that overrides them all. And it's the only identity worth putting any weight into. You're a beloved child of God. And if you put your trust in Jesus and believe that God raised him from the dead, we belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. And it's the most important thing about you because it's the best thing and most important thing that will ever happen to you. And this has many, many implications, but I only want to highlight one today in terms of mental health. Your mental illness or your mental well-being or wherever you are, it's not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. It doesn't define you. It's not an integral part of who you are. It is happening to you, but it is not you. You don't belong to whatever mental illness you may have. You belong to Jesus. Your state of mental health is not forever, but you are a child of God forever. Your state of mental health is not forever, but you are a child of God forever. So you're a holistic being in the middle of God's big story, and you belong to Jesus. Now, you can decide what you put your trust and your identity in, and that's because you've been graced with free will, autonomy, the power of choice. And why is that? Well, one of my favorite quotes is from Dr. Henry Cloud. It says, simply says this, love preserves choice. God loves you enough to preserve your choice. And we know from, Gen- from reading Genesis, Genesis and also from just living life that, um, that giving people the gift of choice is something that can majorly backfire. 
we can use that choice and make some real whoppers. But there's one enormous difference between someone loving you because they're obligated, because there's money or contracts involved, because it looks good on their resume, because of your culture or your family, and the choice to love someone. Sometimes I just sit back and I'm just blown away that Ash, my wife, would choose to love me, even though she knows exactly, precisely how much of a goose that I am. Like, she actually just knows how much of a goose I am. And even so, she chose to place her life alongside mine, take my name and start a family with me. It's a choice to do so that makes all the difference. She didn't have to do that. Maybe people could have advised her differently. (laughs) They would have had some good arguments. But it's the choice to love that makes all the difference. God gives us choice so that we would choose him of of our own free will. What we do with that choice, though, the Bible has a really high view of personal responsibility. What you do with that choice, the Bible says you are personally responsible for. You will reap the consequences or benefits of your choices. That's actually just how reality works. Isaiah 3, 10 to 11 says this, Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked... It shall be ill with them, for whatever his hands has dealt out shall be done to him. You'll reap the benefit or the the consequences of your choices. A couple of years ago, I read a parenting book that had this pithy line that I'll, I'll never forget, but I've forgotten everything else about the book. Your response is your responsibility. And now they were arguing for the importance of children to learn that they, you know, things are going to happen to them, but they're they're responsible for how they respond. And I was reading that and I was like, wow, I need to learn this before I try and teach my kids. <laughs> like, I need to do better at taking responsibility for my responses. Friends, things happen to us in this life that we don't choose. How we respond to them is the choice that we get to make. Victor Frankl in his book, Uh, on on experiences in a concentration camp says this, every situation is distinguished by its uniqueness. There's only ever one right answer to the problem posed by the situation at hand. When a man finds that it's his destiny to suffer, he will have to accept his suffering as his task, his single and unique task. He will have to acknowledge the fact that even in suffering, he is unique and alone in the universe. No one can relieve him of his suffering or suffer in his place. His unique opportunity lies in the way in which he bears his burden. You'll be burdened in your life, but the way you bear your burdens is unique, is your unique opportunity. And there is unique opportunities of how God might use you in the way that you bear your burdens. But can I say, if Frankl's right on uh, everything there, he says, that's really, really depressing. So it's a good thing he's wrong. Though we suffer and things happen to us that we don't choose, we are not alone in the universe. And we never suffer alone. We have Jesus. The one who has suffered in our place, the suffering servant who is well acquainted with our grief, does not abandon us in our suffering, but is with us in it. If you're suffering today, if you're suffering, I want you to hear that Jesus sees you, he knows, and he's in it with you. Whatever you're going through, he knows, and he's in it with you. 
So you're a holistic being that belongs to Jesus in the middle of God's big story. Things happen to us that we don't choose, but God has given us the, cho- the gift of choosing how we will respond to those things. In the book of Job in the Bible, God allows Job to lose everything. And most of the book of Job is uh, Job dialoguing with his four friends about his suffering. And in the dialogue, Job says arguably more heretical things about God than uh, his friends. He assumes that God either isn't just uh, or doesn't run the world justly by just principles. Because he knows, Job knows, that he's innocent and yet he is suffering. So God's either incompetent or unjust. And his friends argue that God is just and runs the world justly, and so Job is obviously just guilty for something and he's forgotten about it. At the end of the book of Job, God turns up and challenges Job. When you start a a conversation by saying, where were you? It's not going to be good for you. (laughs) Where were you when I laid the world's foundation? Basically, you don't see the bigger picture, bro. Like, you just don't get it. And yet, at the end of the book of Job, God says, Job is the one who spoke well of God. And his friends, he says to his friends that they spoke wrongly about him. Now, if you've got a heresy radar going on, you're like, that's not right. You know, Job's the one who's been more, has said the, the, the worst things about God. He's called him unjust and incompetent. One theologian argues that God honours Job's response because Job takes his complaints directly to God. He wrestles them out with God in his suffering. He's unafraid to speak plainly with God about his situation and tell him how he feels. Where his friends, they're just speculating, they're just offering moral platitudes about how Job ought to be responding to God in his situation. God values the honesty and authenticity of how Job approaches him. My friends, it's the same for us. Things will happen to us that we don't choose and we may never understand. Our response is our responsibility. And our response should always be taking our struggles, our distress, our pain, our suffering to Jesus in prayer. To wrestle it out with God and respect him enough to tell him just exactly how we feel. To put away the heresy radar of how you should or should not respond to God and how you should or should not pray and to just be honest with God. And although we may not be big enough to handle that kind of honesty if it ever came our way, God is big enough to handle that from us. And God will honour that because God understands suffering. He sees you, He knows, He's in it with you. And taking it to Jesus in prayer is how we let Jesus be in it with us. Now, you're a holistic being that belongs to Jesus in the middle of God's big story. Things happen to us that we don't choose, but God has given us the gift of choosing how we respond to them. Jesus sees, knows, and is in it with you. So as we begin to wrap up today, I want to offer something from Professor Alan Thomas, who's a church elder and a psychiatrist in the UK. That's what he calls a step care approach to mental health. Now, step care is, is like a process word of using hierarchies of interventions from the least intensive to the most. He offers them as a, hey, before psychotherapy, medication, try this. But of course, if these don't help, go see a GP. Let's just be super clear, depending on your situation, therapy and medication can be very helpful 
not something to be afraid of, and definitely not against the Bible. His step care model pretty much speaks for itself. Each step can help you wherever you are on the mental health spectrum, whether you are very mentally ill or you are mental well and every way in between. First is this, supportive relationships, meaningful work, diet and exercise, substance avoidance, yes, also caffeine, alcohol and smoking, and vaping, should add. And sleep hygiene. And Professor Thomas argues that actually a church family is one of the most aptly placed communities, primed, ready to go to support people and support each other in every aspect of this stepped care approach. We can help each other develop supportive relationships, join a family dinner. We can find meaningful work, help each other find meaningful work. We can, there's meaningful work here. Sign up and join a team. We can encourage each other in their dieting and we can give each other kudos on Strava for all the exercise we do. We can help each other make choices in line with our long-term values when it comes to the substances we take into our bodies. And we can stop celebrating being busy and encourage each other to get the sleep we need in the way that we need it. Let me finish today with part of Elijah's story in 1 Kings 19. Elijah's just had a showdown uh, with the priests of Baal on the mountain. God has won a decisive victory. His parade and rain has poured down on a drought-stricken land. And then Elijah gets a threat in his life and he runs terrified. He's just seen a bull that is soaked wet, lit on fire and a death threat scares him. But he runs. Somewhere out in the wilderness, he rests under a broom brush and prays that God would take his life. I've had enough. Elijah seems a little anxious and depressed. Elijah falls asleep and an angel wakes him up, gives him something to eat and something to drink. And he falls back asleep and the angel gives him another meal, something to eat and something to drink. And then strengthened by the food and the sleep, he travels for 40 days to the mountain of God, 40 days and 40 nights. And when he gets there, God asks him this great question. Why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah answers this, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. God tells him to go out in the mountain and there was a windstorm, an earthquake and a fire, but God was not in any of those. And then comes the sound of a gentle whisper. The thing about a whisper is that you have to be close enough to the person whispering to hear it. God was not in the powerful wind, the earthquake or the fire. God was in the whisper. That tells us something about God, I think. It's more concerned about drawing us closer to him. We can hear his whisper, to hear his voice. A whisper is about the most intimate kind of speech there is. God wants intimacy with his people. God wants intimacy with you. I've always wondered what the whisper on the mountain said because it doesn't tell us. Elijah goes back into the cave and God repeats the question, why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah gives the same answer. And so this is what God does. God gives him a supportive relationship. He tells him to go in and out, anoint Elisha, uh, to walk with him and then eventually replace him. He gives him meaningful work. He tells him to go and anoint Hazal and Yehu, Jehu, I don't know, as, as king. He's given him food to eat and, and water to drink. He's given him a very long walk. 
and all the sleep that he needed. God helps Elijah with his mild anxiety and depression with a stepped care approach. Why is that? Because God knows what Elijah needs and he cares. He draws him close, draws him to the mountain of God. And God knows and cares about you too today. I want you to hear that. God cares and knows and he's drawing you close to him. Whatever you're bearing today, may you know that you're whole, that you belong to Jesus in the middle of God's big story. Whatever's happened to you, God has given you the gift of the choice of how you respond. And that Jesus knows, he sees you, and he's in it with you. Because he cares about you. Jesus says in John 16, 33, I have said all these things to you that in me, you might have peace. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you have overcome the world. And no matter what we're going through, Lord, you are on the throne of the universe. There's nothing that is outside of your power to accomplish. So we ask, Lord Jesus, would you accomplish your power and your will within us? Would you give us the gift of your Holy Spirit in power to do the things that only you can do, to renew us day by day so that we can live for you, for the good of the world and for the glory of your name. Truly, you are the only one worthy of praise, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, before we sing, um, as I was preparing, there's this quote which I just couldn't walk past. It's vitally important that we avoid any suggestion that faith protects a person from being mentally ill. Yet, on the other hand, it would be odd if prayer and a trusting relationship with the Lord had nothing to offer someone struggling with their mental health. We believe that these things will be helpful to someone facing a mental, a physical illness, and the same must be true with a mental illness.